Amen. New Life East, you guys can take a seat. Man, I'm so glad to see all of you. Man, this is the weekend after Easter. And in church, you know, Easter is sort of like the Super Bowl, um, except we're celebrating that someone's like coming back from the dead, not getting, you know, beat 21-0 in the third quarter. But it's, it's a big celebration. But this weird thing sort of happens after Easter where the resurrection happens. We celebrate it. We get together in a room. It's a party. There were close to 800 people here at New Life East on Easter weekend. Yeah, it was beautiful. And then we just go back to normal life. Right? We, we go back to our Monday through Friday job. If you're a kid, you go back to school. You see all your friends, you start going back to sports practices. It's interesting that there's this sort of like milestone moment in Christianity and in faith. And then all of a sudden things just sort of go back to normal. And I would actually propose to you that this is sort of exactly what the experience of Jesus' disciples and closest friends were. After his death, they have this moment where they like have this horrendous thing, this climactic moment, and then they just sort of go back. To normal life. And we're going to start this morning in John chapter 21, and you're going to see that there's this moment where his friends have just sort of returned to their normal life. But simultaneously, what happens in the church then and in the church today is after Easter, a question sort of begins to hang over the life of the disciples and the earliest Christians. And it's a question that I think doesn't just have value for them, thousands of years ago, but it actually contains a lot of value for us today. So let's pray and then we'll hop into the scriptures. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we recognize how beautiful the church is. How beautiful it is that when we walk into this space, we don't walk in as sort of blank canvases. We walk in carrying the realness of life. So God, I don't know what everyone in the room has walked in here with, whether it is joy from the last week, whether it is sadness and difficulty, whether it is doubt and questions, but we acknowledge all of those things this morning. And we look into the scriptures with the hope that they can reveal something to us about you, but can simultaneously reveal something to us about ourselves and the questions that we find ourselves asking. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Jesus, would you meet us in this space? Would this not just be another Sunday? Would this be something beautiful and remarkable? It's in your name that we pray, the resurrected Jesus. Amen. John chapter 21 starts like this. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish. Simon Peter told them. Sounds very much like a man rejecting his emotions after having something very tragic happen to one of his friends. And they said, we'll go with you, a group of men just avoiding the reality of life. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Now, what's interesting, I think often when we sort of engage with this story, we sort of project modern day fishing into it. So we think about them sort of out there with poles, just hanging out in a couple of boats. But that's not how fishing happened in the ancient world. No, the way that it worked was there was this really, really sophisticated system 
It involved multiple people and involved multiple nets and they would sort of pin the net in between their two boats and they would drop it down. There would be weights on it. But the way that it would work is when a school of fish would sort of gather in that spot, when fish would show up, they would yank the net up and grab it. It was this very sort of complex thing as I was sort of reading about it and studying. I was pretty impressed. You know, ancient people, we sort of think like, well, they figured out the wheel, but all the other things seem very difficult. And what they actually did was come up with this really sophisticated method to fish, but it was complicated. It involved multiple people. So for the scriptures to say that they went out and caught nothing was quite literally a way of saying that there were no fish anywhere near their boats. And then something happens. It says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. If you were here with us on Easter, you remember Andrew preaching out of the text where Mary sees Jesus and she thinks he's a gardener. It's this bizarre thing that happens when Jesus shows up. His closest friends, his family members, people who followed him for years, just don't recognize him. They don't see him as Jesus. So Jesus, he shows up on the shore and he calls out to them. Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, if this fishing technique of theirs was so sophisticated, it involved multiple people and you had to position your boats exactly right and the weights had to hit in the exact spot for someone to show up, just a random stranger and yell at them, Try the other side is maybe the dumbest statement you could say to someone. As I was reading this, it reminds me of all the times that I would be, I do like a project at home. I'm like trying to fix something or remodel something. And my wife will walk by and just stare at me for a minute and be like, what are you doing? Like, well, I'm obviously fixing something. You should know that by the sound of loud hammers being banged around and the words that I'm saying under my breath that will not be repeated in church. And she'll look at me and she'll go, well, why didn't you just do it this way? And as a man, I am far too, (laughs) that's right. I am far too stubborn to now change what I have been doing. I will ruin the house before I now change. This is what's happening. Someone has shown up and has said to these guys, they don't know it's Jesus. They just think it's a random stranger. And he says to Peter, why don't you just try on the other side? It doesn't really work that way. It's not that simple. But what the story tells us is that they did it. They moved the net to the other side. I'm not exactly sure how they do it. And when it happens, they're unable to draw in this massive net of fish. Verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is referring to John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Everyone say the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus has made them breakfast. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 fish. But even with so many, the net was not torn. There is miracle after miracle after miracle happening. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, 
who are you? They knew it was who? The Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, I think when we read this story, besides all the miracles happening, I think one of the most interesting things that happen is when they see Jesus after this miracle, they recognize, oh my goodness, this is the risen Lord. They say this is the third time he's appeared to them. They somehow don't recognize them. But after the miraculous catch of fish happens, they suddenly realize it's who? The Lord. Now, in the Gospel of John, something interesting happens every time someone refers to Jesus as the Lord. It's not used all that, that frequently. In fact, he's often called a rabbi. He's called a prophet. He's called a great teacher. There are these moments all throughout the Gospel of John, but throughout the Gospel of John, rarely is he called Lord. In fact, there's only like four times. One of those times is after Lazarus is raised from the dead. He's referred to as Lord. When he meets a man who was born blind and he's healed, that man then refers to him as Lord. When Thomas, after the resurrection, sees the holes in his hands and his doubt is sort of overcome, he then refers to Jesus as the Lord. There are all these moments where Jesus is called a lot of things, but very rarely is he called Lord. And it's worth noting that when he is called Lord, it almost always comes after or right in the middle of something miraculous happening. Something happening where people realize, they sort of have the veil torn from their eyes and they realize that Jesus is not just a teacher, he's not just a prophet, he's not even just a rabbi. He actually has some power in him. He has some capacity to control matter and time and space and he has the ability to step into the lives of even those who are dead and raise them back to life. They have these moments where they see Jesus as someone who is not just a human, but is far more than that. He is the Lord in the flesh. They see him as something significant, which becomes the way that the word Lord gets used throughout history, even in our creeds. Uh, An easy way to sort of understand how the word Lord is represented throughout Christianity is this, is that a, a Lord is a person who has absolute ownership over something about which he has the power of deciding. He is the possessor of a thing. He owns, he has full rights. But there's something interesting that begins to happen with the word Lord pretty quickly after the resurrection of Jesus. Soon after the resurrection of Jesus, some historians would even say before, this thing called the Roman imperial cult is beginning to rise up in the Roman world, very much which Jesus and his disciples were a part of. The Roman imperial cult is exactly what it sounds like. It was a cult of people who worshipped the Roman emperors, not just as kings or as emperors, but as divine. What happens first is a man by Julius Caesar. Many of you have heard that name before. Julius Caesar dies. And when he dies, two things happen. One, the night that he dies, a comet flies through the sky. And the myth becomes that as that comet soars people begin to say that that is Julius Caesar taking his rightful place among the gods. This is the story that begins to unfold. When this happens, a vote takes place among the the groups of leaders in the Roman Empire. And they place a vote that Julius Caesar was no mere man. He was in fact, these are their words, God in the flesh. 
This is the first thing that happens that begins to build this up. Second, Julius Caesar's son, Augustus, he gets then put into power. And you know what happens when the son of someone who was declared as Lord gets put into power, they begin to call him the what? The son of God. So this myth begins to build around the Roman imperial cult that there are actually divine, God in the flesh leaders who are now in charge and they have a space and a right to be worshiped. So what do you think happens? Well, they begin to build temples and shrines all over the place where people can come and make sacrifices and offerings and worship to these divinely appointed men. In fact, in the city of Ephesus, you, you've heard of Ephesus, it's where we get the book Ephesians from. In the city of Ephesus, a temple is built at one point for a Roman emperor named Domitian. And what would happen is people would come in to make their sacrifices. And in order to make their sacrifices, they would have to get a stamp or a mark on their hand. Roman emperors were often referred to as beasts. So you can see where we sometimes get this phrase of the mark of the beast. So the question that sort of existed in Ephesus is, would you take the mark? Would you walk into the temple and make the sacrifice? Would you essentially say that a Roman emperor was lord of the world? There's stories of festivals and gatherings where Roman emperors loved to hear their names shouted as the Lord. This is going on in the background of the resurrection and the growing of the church. So when Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 10, words you've heard many times before, he says this, Romans 10 verse 9, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is what? And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And then he tags this, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is simultaneously a theological statement and a complicated political one. Because to say that Jesus was Lord was not just to acknowledge your faith publicly. Right? We sort of think about this as a moment where you would inaugurate your faith, right? Jesus is Lord. To say that Jesus is Lord is to directly and implicitly say that something or someone else is not. To say that Jesus is Lord now is to say that Jesus is Lord and something else is not. And the way that they understood who was Lord, right? We think about this now. Who's really in charge of the world? Well, it's whoever, who, it's whoever gets the final say, whoever can call it out and make it happen. So I would say this to us today. We as the church know that Jesus is truly Lord of all because he always gets the final word. This is what the church began to stand for and fight for. So when they would say something like Jesus is Lord, it was to look at the Roman emperors and the Roman empire and say, Jesus is Lord. He gets the final word. You do not because something happens. Julius Caesar dies, Augustus dies, Domitian dies, and there's this crew of people named Christians walking around constantly going, well, that Lord died, and that Lord died, and that one did too, but ours is still alive. This is what begins to happen in the early church. This question began to float around where they would be asking who is truly Lord of all? Is it the political superpower? 
Or is it this carpenter from, from Nazareth who was crucified by that superpower, but they didn't kill him? Now, the interesting thing about the world in which we live today is that there are still plenty of Caesars that sort of float around. Not necessarily people, although they can be. But there are plenty of voices who spend time in our world telling us that they actually get the final say. So here's, there's two things I just want you to know this morning. One, Jesus is Lord of the world. Which means when things like war rise up, the question that Christians ought to be asking is who gets the final word? Does a tyrannical government get the final word? Do, do crazy military leaders get the final word? Or does Jesus get the final word? When elections show up, man, election season is so, so joyous, isn't it? I know, we always see the best side of people during that stretch of time. But it never fails, whether it's local or it's, it's national. I'll, I'll talk with Christians all the time, and they'll say things like, man, you know, this election's so important. I know Jesus is Lord, but... And then we just hang there for a second. I know Jesus is Lord, but if we get the wrong guy, we're in trouble. Man, I know Jesus is Lord, but if the school board election goes sideways, who knows? I know Jesus is Lord, but if the wrong local official is present, the wrong woman or the wrong man gets put into office, well, then the world might crumble into pieces. Who is truly Lord of all? Is Jesus Lord of the world? I think I had a friend last night. I was talking to him about this message. I think about there's, there's sort of like a, a private space race going on. Who can stretch humanity's longevity? Who can get to Mars first? Will Elon Musk get us to Mars? Whether he does or whether he doesn't, the question still remains, who is truly Lord of the world? If Elon Musk somehow can figure out how to expand life on another planet, is he Lord? Or if it doesn't happen, is he Lord? See, Jesus is still Lord of the world today. But if Jesus is Lord of the world, it also means this. Jesus is also Lord of your world. See, the beautiful thing about our God is that he's never been a God who is interested in being far off and distant. Our God is not solely interested in the big global issues of the day. Our God is actually fascinated by your life. And if Jesus is Lord of your world, I think an interesting question worth considering are what are the voices that you have allowed to get the final say in your life? I can think about my own life. There have been moments where I've seen things sort of reveal themselves. Often I talk to people and when I hear them, they're so frantic about money, about their finances. I wouldn't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us in this room could openly admit that many times in our life, finances have gotten the final word. I can think of a moment in, in my wife and I's life where we were just sort of like strapped for money. We had used everything we had. Everything was either like being moved around. We were at like $0. We had like $12 left in the bank until we got paid again. I was Googling, how do you declare bankruptcy? Like, do you just go outside and yell it out loud? Um, <laughs> It's a very like unclear thing in the world we live in. I, we were at the point where we were just going like, well, do like, 
do I have to sell a body part on the black market? Like, what do we have to do to make this work? And we had this moment together where we thought, if Jesus is truly Lord of all, doesn't he get a say in how our finances go? And I can remember we started praying and we both had this feeling that like God was going to do something. And within a 24 hour span of us sitting there going, God, we can't be Lord of our finances. When we're Lord of our finances, we're poor. Can you help us? Within 24 hours, we had $900 worth of checks show up at our door. And these weren't the checks from like the nice church people that we had like slid in the passive aggressive comment about. You know, like, man, we're really struggling to make rent. If you wanna like give us some money, that'd be cool. We didn't tell a soul. Money that we like were getting from like credit card companies where we had paid off our credit card and we had actually overpaid. They're sending us money. Our car, our car dealership said, you've overpaid on your loan. Here's your money. That doesn't happen. So when you think about finances in your own life, is Jesus Lord of all? I've sat with many of you and had conversations and coffees and lunches and I've heard your stories. And one of the things that is sort of a theme at New Life East is there are many families who are represented here who have prodigal kids. Kids who have left home, kids who have left faith and you as parents, you as family members, maybe for some of you, it's even just your friends. You're wondering if they will ever come home. You ask the question of, is Jesus truly Lord of my kids, of my friends, of my brothers, of my sisters? I remember growing up, I was friends with this guy named Nate. Nate was a really good kid. He, him and I had gone to school together most of, honestly, probably the first 15, 16 years of our life and knew his family fairly well. And he lived in a good home. I remember one day I was in, I was probably 19 years old. And I, I met I saw Nate's sister. I, I worked at a, a mall and she came in and I was like, hey, how's Nate doing? And she's like, man, we haven't seen Nate in two years. I was like, what? That's crazy. You haven't seen Nate in two years? They were like, he, he didn't like leave. He just one day never came back home. And the story was that he was still living in the city that we were in. He was just sort of bouncing around from house to house. He was selling drugs. He was wrestling with a drug issue that he was dealing with, all sorts of things. He was just with a crew of people that wasn't sort of promoting the well-being of his life. And as I remember his sister told me, my dad, every night at around nine o'clock, gets in his car and just drives to try to find him. While my mom sits at home and just sobs and prays, asking over and over, Jesus, would you bring my son home? And I know for many of us in this room, that's a prayer that you've prayed. I remembered not much longer, maybe six months later, I get a text from a close friend of mine who says, hey, did you, read, did you see the news today? And I said, no, I, I haven't. He said, Nate was shot and murdered last night. I thought, what? It was kind of the first moment in my life where someone I'd grown up with was just gone. So I went to the funeral that happened a week later. It was closed casket because he was in such bad shape. It was a brutal experience. And this church was packed. I remembered sitting in the back and his mom was getting up to talk. And I remember thinking, man, what, like, what brutal moment for a mom to have to stand up at her son's funeral and say anything. But she wanted to. And when I heard that she wanted to, I kind of got nervous, like, oh, please don't do the, like, oh, everyone come to Jesus thing at a funeral. Like, that's such a, it's such a weird space to do that. 
She got up, she told the story of praying every night that Nate would just come home, asking Jesus to like step in and intervene. She finally says these words, I'll never forget it. She finally says, I kept begging God to bring my son home. And he finally did. And I don't know if she realized it when she said it, but what she was saying was a profound theological statement. That what she believed about her God, about Jesus, was that he was truly Lord of all. That even unto death, Jesus got the final word. That it doesn't matter how long your son or daughter has been gone, but that Jesus will always get the final word. He will always do everything he can to draw, the, draw him to them. The ideal is always that they come home in love and are embraced by a father and a mother who run off the porch and greet them. But stories don't always end beautifully. But what she found in that moment of darkness and sadness and complete loss was that Jesus was somehow still Lord of all. So for you parents in the room, you family members who have prodigal kids, I'm sure the question you're asking is, is Jesus truly Lord of all? And the answer is yes, he is. For some of us, it may not be money that has become the Lord of our world. It may not be the like fear of if our prodigal kids get the final say in their life. For many of us, the thing that has been getting the final say in our, word, the th- in our world, the thing that has become Lord of all is the narrative that we have been handed in life, the legacy that has been passed to us, and we are trying to carry it. And for many of us, the legacy that we've been handed is one of familial brokenness. It's one of fractured relationships. It's one of pain and abuse. I remember when my wife and I had our, um, our son, Huck, and... Uh, So I grew up in a divorce family. Um, I am the last person, I am the only person married in our family to this day. Generation after generation after generation after generation, whether it's infidelity, divorce, whatever it may be, all those things are gone. I'm the last person that's still married. And that's quite a weight to put on the shoulder of a young kid. When we had our son Huck, I remembered this pressure that all of a sudden mounted. And I realized that what I had begun to believe was that by having a kid, by having a son now, the legacy of my family was inevitably going to be handed to me. The truth was that what I believed was that now that I had a kid, divorce was inevitable. It was just going to happen. There was no way around it. I remembered having nights looking at my son thinking, man, I love you so much, but there is a good chance I will fail at this. That I will carry on the sins of my parents and my grandparents and generation after generation will flow through me. I tell you all this to say that what had begun to happen was the narrative I had been handed began to be Lord of the world for me. It was the deciding factor. Until I went to therapy and talked to wise people and I finally had someone just sort of jostle me and say to me, you realize that you don't get the final say in your life. Which as an independent American, I don't really appreciate hearing. (laughs) 
They said, you don't get the final say in your life. Jesus does. And I was like, yeah, but Jesus, no, Jesus knows. I was like, yeah, but Jesus doesn't, no, Jesus understands all of it. Jesus gets the final say in your story too, church. What I know is that for many of us, whether it's your first time here, you've been coming to church your whole life, is that you haven't bowed down at the, the threshold or the altar of an idol. You haven't bowed down to money. You haven't bowed down to fear and anxiety, but what you keep bowing down to and letting have the final word in your life is the fear that the way your life will turn out is, a way, is one that you can control and make perfect and mold into everything that you need it to be. Is Jesus truly Lord of all? So I just wanna ask, I, I, I don't necessarily love preaching sermons like this where I'm just gonna leave you with a question. I'd love to give you like application and you can go do stuff with it and your life will be great. But where are there where are there places and voices in your life where you are still allowing them to get the final word? Where are the places that as you look deep into your soul, it isn't Jesus that gets the final word, it's something else. It's a construct, it's money, it's, it's your career. It's your, it's your longing for perfection. It's your longing to be wanted. Where are the places where Jesus is not getting the final word? Because the sad truth is what the early church knew and what we ought to sort of be reminded of is that if Jesus doesn't get the final word, Jesus isn't Lord. This is why we have a thing like baptism weekend. Because baptism is a moment for so many of us where we mark our lives and say, I'm going to believe and adopt and accept the story that is being handed to me. And for some of you, you have fought the idea of getting baptized to like publicly declare your faith. I just wanna challenge some of you that next weekend when that moment shows up, you have a choice. Will you continue to sort of be one foot in, one foot out to allow your life to be dictated by something that is not truly Lord of all or will you allow your life to be marked by Jesus? To say, Jesus, I know you hold the keys to history. You hold the keys to the future. You hold my present in your hands. Jesus, you are truly Lord of all. And you sit over all of it. I wanna invite you to stand. In a moment, we're gonna sing some familiar words. They're words, if you've been around New Life for a little while, you know these words. What I find so interesting about this song is that we often sing it, at least I do, sort of with blind wishfulness. We sing that our God is overall just wishing that he would be. We're not gonna sing it that way today. Today, the way that we're gonna sing this song, the way that we're gonna end our time together is by singing these words with deep faith. Not wishing that God would be over every part of our lives, not wishing that God would have a say, not wishing that Jesus would get the final word, but believing wholeheartedly that Jesus gets the final word in our lives, that he is truly Lord of all. So New Life East, would you sing? And then we'll step to the table together. Over the city 
come to the table where the grave could not hold Jesus. He was on his way to die on a cross for our sins. He is over death. So what we're going to do first before we take, before we eat this meal that he has prepared for us is that we're going to confess the places in our lives where we have made other things Lord. Would you say this prayer of confession with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. This meal of communion is open to those who've called upon the name of, of the Lord. Scripture says is that when we do that, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. 
So if you have done that, then this meal is for you. Scripture says that you are forgiven. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. Would you hold this wafer in your hand? When he had given thanks, he broke it. Would you break that bread? He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do you know that, that Jesus is still for you? He intends good things for those who love him. That's you. Would you receive those good things as you taste the bread? Let's eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you, whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So we remember the same thing. Jesus, we are claiming your lordship over our lives. We're receiving your lordship over the circumstances. As Pastor Rory said, even the, the relationships in our lives that are out of our control, God, by us coming to the table today is just relinquishing it to you. We give it to you. Would you purify us, Jesus? Would you receive God's gift together. Thank you, Jesus. Church, let's lift up our voices in singing the doxology. Praise God from all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him New Life East, would you simply open your hands and receive this today? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace. And would we all leave this space knowing that Jesus is truly Lord of all. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. Some members of our altar team will be up here. If you need to pray or just have a conversation, maybe for some of you it's figuring out what this next step of getting baptized and making Jesus the Lord of your life looks, looks like. We'd love to be a part of that conversation. If you're a guest, fill out that card that's on your seat. Bring it by Connect Central. We have a gift, gift for you. We'd love to say thank you for being a part of the weekend with us. We hope you guys have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.